Amen. Well, I have a feeling that today is going to come across a little bit different than our previous weeks in Colossians, simply because we're going to look at all of what we've learned about Christ in us, the cosmic plan of reconciliation and the personal reconciliation and how that informs how we live, how it informed Paul's ministry to the church and how it informs our ministry in the church. And so today we are finishing our four-week series through Colossians chapter 1. And I want to give a good overview of what we've been through in this chapter. And so we started our series, Justin preached the first 14 verses, and we began understanding how Paul is writing to the Colossians to admonish them from wavering from the sufficiency of Christ Jesus. And he's thanking God for their faith in Christ Jesus and their love for all the saints. And he prays that the gospel would continue bearing that fruit as it already has and as it is doing in the world. And it bore this fruit when they understood the grace of God in the truth. Not only that, but we're told that by being filled with the knowledge of Christ, that results in a life that is lived worthy of the gospel, fully pleasing to him. But it also comes by being strengthened with Christ's glorious power for all endurance and patience with joy. I'm just working through this first 14 verses. And all of that produces gratitude to the Father who has delivered us from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of glorious light, into the kingdom of His beloved Son, in whom we have hope, peace with God. And it's all of that that Paul goes on to delineate in verses 15 through 29. And so in verses 15 through 20, we saw that Christ is glorious. He's preeminent. He's the image of the invisible God. All creation was made through him, for him, by him, and all things hold together in him. He is the eternally unique glory image of God the Father. We spent a lot of time here breaking our brains, trying to consider that. And in fact, all of history is about him, the son, reconciling all things to himself. Specifically, how we have ruined everything, how sin has ruined everything. And Christ, this unique, eternally begotten, glory image, son of God, put on flesh, defeating death, first fulfilling all of the law, then dying in our place, resurrecting from the grave, defeating death, defeating evil, and making himself the firstborn among the dead, being preeminent over all things. 100% God, 100% man. This was the plan of God. We talked about how his image in comes from having perfect love and fellowship with the Father within the Trinity. And our image, as image bearers, the image created in us, is modeled after that one. And as He is in perfect fellowship and union with God, even now beside the right hand of the Father, we will be also in glorious fellowship, holy as He is holy, to be able to fellowship and enjoy God forever. That is what we will be. And then last week we talked about not just how reconciliation is cosmic, 
but how it's personal. The personal reconciliation that we have with God as a part of the body of Christ by faith. We were alienated, remember? We were hostile to God. But through faith, we have received the reconciliation that Christ accomplished as our substitute and as our mediator. He did it. We received it. And in Christ, we are in the process of and will be presented holy, blameless, and above reproach before God the Father. And this is true if we continue in the faith. And we discovered that that is not some threatening quest of relative obedience, but it's an admonishment in the Lord not to forsake Christ, who is our only hope. As we know that false teachers and false practices are going around Colossae tempting them to do so. He says, continue in the faith. It's an admonishment that we are to ground ourselves, that they, are, they were to ground themselves in no other place but Christ Jesus, who he is and what he has done. So all in all, we have been looking at the glory of Christ. We've been looking at the glory of Christ as Paul gives a clear vision of the person and the work of Christ as the thing that's going to protect them from protect the class A Christians from false teaching and off-base practices. And this is what will also protect us from false teachings and off-base practices or misunderstandings of justification and sanctification in our culture. So it's on account of Christ alone that anyone's going to be forgiven of sin, counted righteous, and have peace with God and appear with Christ in glory at his return. And it is also, as we have said each week, it is in Christ that people are sanctified, enabled, and empowered to put off the old self and put on the new self, which is created in the likeness of Christ, who is our identity. And so considering all of this, this is Christ in you. This is what it means that you are united to Christ and that he is the hope of glory. And so with that in mind, we're not going to spend a ton of time today unpacking Christ in you, the hope of glory. But like I said, we're going to consider a lot of how that informs our life, how it informed Paul's ministry to the church, and how it informs our ministry to each other in the church. And so we end our journey today reflecting I think I'm just going to repeat myself on Paul's ministry to the church, our ministry to one another in the church. And uh, thrust, a large portion of our time, will be considering the church and our collective role in presenting each other mature in Christ. Our life in him, vertical, is lived towards one another, horizontal. And so here's the plan. We're going to, I'm going to, after I read the text, we have two parts. The first part is just to go through the text and look at Paul's ministry to the church. And then part two is a large reflection on our ministry to the church, the pastor's ministry here at CBC and your ministry to one another. So that's what we will do. And without any further comments, we will read our text today. This is God's holy, perfect, infallible word. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I'm filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you, to make the word of God fully known 
the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. We praise God for his word today. So part one, Paul's ministry to the church. We're going to look at verse 24. And of course, we all heard that verse read. You may have looked at it this week and you're instantly thinking, what in the world is lacking in Christ's afflictions? What, why would he even use this language? What, what does he mean? And so also the next question would be, well, why is he rejoicing in suffering? And so to answer those two questions, we're going to answer what is lacking in Christ's afflictions first. What is meant by that in order to answer the first part of this verse? And so as I was studying and, and learning and, and reading and looking at how the church historically has understand this verse or preached this verse or it's a mixed bag. It's more of like a mixed pantry. It's bigger than a bag. Um, but the thing is, is that that shouldn't discourage us. It's not that people are saying false things or wrong interpretations. People say very true things about the church, about suffering, about Christ, about uh, his mystical body lived on earth. People are saying very true things about all of that stuff in terms of Christ's afflictions and what that could mean, what's lacking in them. But as I've studied, this is my answer. You have the text in front of you, and you can uh, weigh it with the whole counsel of Scripture and also think about it yourself. And my answer is that what is lacking in Christ's affliction is the in-person proclamation of those afflictions to the world. So let's unpack this. We know that Paul cannot be meaning that there is a deficiency regarding the active and the passive obedience of Christ. It can't be that he didn't fulfill the whole law and that he wasn't perfect. Otherwise, he wouldn't be God. Otherwise, he couldn't be our mediator. He couldn't be a perfect sacrifice. And it couldn't be that his atoning death, his passion, was not enough to atone for our sins. If that was true, if any of that was true, then all of Scripture is debunked. Not only that, but it would go against everything that Paul has previously written of the glory of Christ, the preeminence of Christ. If his afflictions, if his atonement lacks, then he is not preeminent, as we've learned. But it would also just go against the reason he's writing the letter. So we know this can't be true. He's made it utterly and uniquely clear that Christ is enough for forgiveness, for righteousness, for peace, and for sanctification. He is enough. Now, what Paul also cannot be communicating is that Christ's afflictions are enough, but it's our suffering with his that, it, that is meritorious for our redemption. This is what Rome would have taught, or maybe still does. That is also not true. It is not our afflictions or our suffering as saints in the church added to Christ that will present us holy before God. Not at all. It is him on account of him, that we will be presented holy, blameless, and above reproach. But here's the thing. 
His work is enough, but he is resurrected and he is ascended at the right hand of the Father. So who will tell the world of the mystery which has been revealed in Christ Jesus? Where are the mouths that will proclaim this great mystery? Faith comes by hearing and hearing through the word of Christ, Romans 10, 17. So ministers of the gospel must take his afflictions to a lost and dead world. So what lacks in Christ's afflictions are beautiful feet to take them to the world, to sinners who need to hear of a Savior who died in their place. Now, I'll stop there for a second to say a few things about this suffering. In the apostolic era, when the church is being formed, we're thinking about Pentecost, we're thinking about the apostles and the church is first forming. There is a unique kind of suffering that the church is going through, that the, pot, that the apostles experience that cannot be denied. And I, and I think that that is a thing, right? Um, and so I just want to state that and we'll move on. So the reason I say that what's lacking in Christ's afflictions is a mouth to proclaim his afflictions to the world is because this is what he says in verse 25, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God, to make the word of God fully known. To make the word of God fully known. So he's a minister by the gospel, of the gospel to the church, and especially the Gentiles, to, wait, to make the word of God fully known to the world. And specifically, what Paul is rejoicing over is not that his suffering is good, but that his sufferings are for the purpose of the gospel going out in power. Romans 1.16, the gospel is the power of those who believe. It's the power to save for those who believe. And so the gospel is not just going out dead. His afflictions and his sufferings are because the gospel is going out and it is bearing fruit. And God is actually using this suffering for that purpose. And this era of the church began and was founded upon the proclamation of Christ's afflictions to the world, specifically during this apostolic era and other qualified men during this time, screaming and proclaiming to Jews and Gentiles alike that Christ is the point of history, that Christ, what all the mysteries of God have been revealed in him, the Savior of the world is here. We know him, we've seen him, we've touched him, and he died for sinners. Believe in him, be reconciled to God, and they're suffering and they're persecuted for this message. So moving on to verse 25, I know we, we spoke a little bit on it. Here's a few things that is just important to know from this verse. He says, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship of God. So this isn't Paul's message. This isn't Peter's message. This is the gift of God which Paul is stewarding. He doesn't own it. It's not his. He didn't create it. It's God's, and Paul is the steward of it. He says the same thing in Ephesians 2, Ephesians 3, 2 and 3, how he's a steward. God gave him this gift to steward to the world, specifically to the Gentiles. From God for you, he says in verse 25. This gift was given. It came from God, and it was given to me for you for the benefit of their salvation and their maturity. This is the reason he is suffering, because he's been made a minister of the church to proclaim and preach the gospel to the church. And it is through Paul's suffering that God furthers the gospel. And this is just often the case, right? God uses suffering to make the gospel shine bright. And this isn't the way that we want it to be. We don't want 
good things to come through suffering. We don't want suffering and then glory. We would like glory now. But it was often through suffering that the church has grown the most and has shined the brightest. It's not always the case, but it was usually, it has usually been the case. This is the way God works. And the specific stewardship here in verse 25 entails the gospel going out in power to save people. So when he says that to make the word of God fully known, Romans 15, 19 is when he says, he gives examples of how far the gospel has gone in a certain area. And it wasn't just that the gospel was preached there, but people heard it and people believed it. People of all kinds, all ethnicities, all regions, people were believing the gospel. So in God's ordained ministry for Paul, what he had to do, make the word of God fully known in a certain place, happened. It happened. Moving on to verse 26. Now, what is the word of God? It's the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but is now revealed to his saints. Deuteronomy 29, 29. The secret things belong to the Lord. We we said a lot of these things. I know Justin quoted this a lot when we were going through Genesis because there's so many questions. There's so many questions that we have when we begin to to study God and begin to to think about reality. We we have all kinds of questions and, and maybe concerns and trying to think and wrestle with things. But here's the thing. There's only one true mystery that really matters. There's only one true mystery and question that really matters that we must have answered. And that is the mystery of God hidden for ages and generations. Christ in you, for you, to save you. This is the mystery of God that was hidden for ages and has been revealed in Christ Jesus. And this is truly the only mystery that matters. And this is what Paul has been given to steward. That all of the mysteries are revealed in Christ Jesus and he's telling the world that it's Christ in you, the hope of glory. So there are also, uh, in the past, the promise was clear, right? That a savior would come. The promise was clear that God was going to send one and the nations would be blessed by him. But there were types and there were shadows meant to drive Israel back to this promise of the offspring of Abraham, the greater Moses, the eternal descendant of King David, the one that the law and the sacrificial system pointed to. There was all these types and shadows, but Christ was not seen. There was external figures, if you will, but they all pointed to him. So the mystery and that it was not yet revealed completely through ages and generations. But now Christ has come. And what all those things pointed to, what all those things preached about, all these saving truths are no longer concealed as a mystery, but they are revealed in Him. So not only was this a mystery to Israel, we're thinking about verse 26 or moving on to verse 27. Not only was it a mystery to Israel, who were God's covenant people, who had the law, who had the prophets, who had the sacrificial system, but it was a mystery especially to everyone else. The whole world was shut out from the covenant of God. And eternal life was, was not available seemingly to them because of their rebellion and because of God's sovereignty. But this fact, this mystery hidden for ages is revealed in Christ and the whole world is called to the hope of salvation. God loved the world so much he sent his son not to condemn it, 
to save it through him. John Calvin says, The whole world which was estranged from God is called to the hope of salvation, and the same inheritance of eternal life is offered to all. Moving on to verse 27, the point, the reason I bring it up and the reason I'm saying it this way is because Jews and Gentiles now become one in the body of Christ. And this is massive when you read the Old and the New Testaments because it was God's covenant people that the promises belonged to, that the hope of eternal life belonged to, not to the rest of the world. But now, revealed in Christ, this salvation, the afflictions of Christ, the atoning work of Christ is for the world. And we'll, we'll get to understanding this in a little bit more. So Gentiles would be grafted into the covenant people in Christ. And we see in verse 27 that to them God chose to make known. This was something God delighted to do. This was something that he had always planned to do. Genesis 12, 3, when he's uh, making this covenant with Abraham, he tells Abraham, in you all of the families of the earth shall be blessed. And we know that there will be blessed in his offspring, who is Christ. So although it seemed like the Gentiles in the working of the Old Testament, like the world was just lost and dead with no hope, it was always the plan of God to save the world. To save the world. It pleased God. It was his own pleasure to place his people in Christ Jesus. But before placing them in Christ Jesus, to crush Jesus on their behalf, on your behalf, on my behalf. Verse 27, so he makes it great among the Gentiles. What does he make great? The riches of the glory of this mystery. And what are the riches? Christ in you, the hope of glory. And I just want to bring your attention to Ephesians chapter 1, just so we can take a moment and just reflect on what is ours. What is ours? I know we've done it in the last three weeks. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, Ephesians 1, 4, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption. We're children of God. We're sons of God through Christ Jesus. Verse 7, In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished on us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of His will, which is what? According to His purpose, which He has set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things, whether in heaven or on earth, in Him sounds familiar, right? Reconciliation, cosmic reconciliation, and we are a part of this. All things will be right, and we're a part of this glorious plan. In him, we've obtained this inheritance, having been predestined according to his purpose of him who works all all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we, who are the first to hope in Christ, might be to the praise of his glory, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we take possession of it, to the praise of his glory. Redemption, adoption, we know the plan. We know the point of history. We're a part of it. And we have the Holy Spirit, which we read from and heard about from John 14 today, and we'll talk a little more moving forward. 
So this is the entire secret. The whole mystery of God is revealed in Christ Jesus. All the heavenly riches of wisdom are ours. They are the Gentiles, the Jews, those who believe in the gospel. The riches of the wisdom of God are ours because they, because we are in Christ. And he says that it's the, the riches of the glory of the mystery come because we, it is Christ in you, the hope of glory, the hope of glory. Therefore, if you have Christ, you lack nothing. You lack absolutely nothing if you have Christ. God is directly and personally present in the lives of his people because we've been given adoption. We've been given his Holy Spirit that has sealed us for the day of redemption. We know the point of history. We're reconciled to God. We have peace with him. We're his sons and daughters. What a glorious work this is that we have these eternal, imperishable riches contained in these earthly bodies. On a day like today, where we're not fully, you know, uh, uh, delineating what all of this means, it sometimes can, can just fly over us. Like, yeah, adoption, forgiveness, and all this stuff, but it's true. Even if you sit there today distracted and not feeling it, it's yours. Adoption, forgiveness, hope, reconciliation, it's yours. And it stinks that we don't always feel it because we are in these bodies of death. Nonetheless, it is ours. Christ in you, the hope of glory. A little side note, um, you hear us often talking about how it's extra nos, look outside of yourself to Christ. Well, this is not undermining that by saying Christ in you. What Christ did outside of us becomes ours through our union with him, Christ in you. That's all we're, we're, we're looking at here. So that's the end of the side note. Uh, Finishing up, or getting close to finishing up our verses here. Verse 28, Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. It is the proclamation of Christ, who He is, what He has done, that every man is warned, law, and taught gospel in order that they might not forsake the great hope that is theirs, that they would mature in Him who is their hope. And finally be presented to God, holy, blameless, and without need of reproof in him. We're going to spend a great deal of our reflection time considering this verse. And so I'm going to be brief here. But notice how Paul writes every man three times. It is him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. I have, I think, made it clear by saying that he had, that this message is for the world. And here's, here's why. Because the false teachers that were bombarding the churches, all of them believed in this elitism. You had to be the most educated and the most spiritual in order to get this knowledge or to act or, or to, to have these practices in your life that would reach to this extra godliness. You had to be very strong. You had to be very wise. And Paul is, is making it abundantly clear that the gospel is not just for the wise. It's not just for the strong. It's for the weak, the wounded, the sick, the poor, the lowly, the sinners, for every person without distinction. Not every person without exception. We know that all men won't be saved. But the gospel is for all men without distinction. 
Doesn't matter your ethnicity. Doesn't matter your color. Doesn't matter your education. None of those things matter. Martin Lloyd-Jones said, the mightiest intellect and the most ignorant fool can be saved by the gospel. This is why in Romans 1, verse 14, Paul says that he's a debtor, my paraphrase and maybe emphasis, he's a debtor to the Greeks and the philosophers. He's a debtor to the young ones, to the ignorant ones, to the wise ones, to the foolish ones. Why, why is he a debtor? Because he makes himself all things for all people because that's who the gospel is for. He's laboring because he knows the gospel has power to save any man. And the nature of Christ's reconciling work is cosmic. The whole world. Nothing is going to go untouched by the Savior's work, whether in glory or judgment. Yes, it's true. I just said many harden their hearts and God doesn't save everyone. And the details of all that's not for my finite mind or yours either, probably. But be comforted that God is good and he is sovereign. And this gospel goes out to everyone. And it brings those who believe to life in Christ. And it completes them, mature in him. The day of Christ coming. Finishing up here, verse 29. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. I'm going to ask you to turn to 2 Corinthians 11. It's probably it's a few pages to the left. Maybe a couple few pages. And the reason I want us to read verses 21 through 28 is just to get into perspective the toil and the struggle that God ordained for these apostles to go through. For the salvation of God's elect and for the establishment of the church. He's toiling and struggling. So looking at verse 21, to my shame I must say that we were too weak for that. But whatever anyone else dares to boast of, I'm speaking as a fool. I also dare to boast of that. Are they Hebrews? Sorry, excuse me. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they offspring of Abraham? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? I'm a better one. I'm talking like a madman for the, with far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings and often near death. Five times I received at the hand of the Jews the 40 lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was drift at sea on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, dangers from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea. Danger from false brothers and toil and hardship through many a sleepless night and hunger and thirst, often without food and cold and exposure. And apart from other things, there was the daily pressure on me, my anxiety for all the churches. Who is weak? Yeah, that's, that's verse 28. Yeah, so I think that gives us a good picture of the toil, of the, the hardship. Paul says that I struggled. And here's the key with all his energy that he powerfully worked within me. In 1 Corinthians 15.10, Paul says, By the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace towards me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God within me. And this is why he says in Philippians 4.13 that I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. 
This is the work of Paul to the church by the grace and the energy of God for the purposes of the church. And so this is Paul's ministry. This is Paul's ministry. And that concludes part one. And so now I want to move into part two and consider our ministry in the church. How does this inform our ministry? Everything that we've, we've learned from Colossians chapter 1 and what we see in, in Paul's ministry here and how specifically verse 28, how he aims to present the saints mature in Christ. And so to consider our ministry in this church, number one, I got two things. It's the pastor's ministry to CBC and your ministry to each other. And so number one, the pastor's ministry to CBC. Looking at verse 28, him we proclaim. Brothers and sisters, this is what the pastors of this, this is what your pastors do. We proclaim him. It's not what we preach. It is who we preach. The way we equip you, the saints, for the work of ministry is first and primarily through the preaching and the teaching of Christ Jesus from all the scriptures. We faithfully and fully proclaim him every Lord's day. And we go before you praying God's will for your life. Second thing, and then we'll come back to the first thing. The second thing is, look, we're sinners too. We are fellow strugglers with you, but we are set apart for the work of ministry. And so the second way that I understand us to be laboring for your maturity is by leading lives worthy of your imitation. We aim to live among you and with you, modeling what it is to live a simple life with a pure devotion to Christ. Sure, we fail, and we've got a lot to learn, but this is our aim. These two ways we seek to mature and grow you in Christ Jesus. And so going back to the first, that we proclaim Christ. It is him that we proclaim. We proclaim him because he is the gospel. Christ is the gospel. And it is to be proclaimed because the nature of the gospel is one of objectivity. It is not suggestions. It's not tips to live by. It is to be declared what Christ has done in your place. It's not about what you do, and it's not about what you're going to do. It's about what He has done for you. And so if there's one expectation that you have for us on Sunday morning, is that we come declaring Christ Jesus for you from the Scriptures. And if we ever stop doing that, fire us. But the two sides of proclaiming Christ we see is warning everyone and teaching everyone. The law, we warn. The gospel, we teach. It's the law that condemns us, and it's the good news that brings us to life in Christ. And it's the law in Christ that guides our living, and it's the gospel that bears fruit in our life, that the, God, that the law may become a guide. We learn from chapter 1, that it's because of the hope laid up for them. It was the gospel that was bearing fruit in their life. Their faith and love were the gospel's fruit in their life. And you know, when it comes to our maturity and our growth, here's the thing. We all want the fast track. We all want the spiritual vitality plan that's going to get us mature fast. 
And this is how we live, too. We're fast-paced. We're always busy. We're always doing something new, trying to do something new to revitalize and get going. There are a million books out there with this MO. And we're tempted to go after the shiny, quick growth methods. We really are. But here's the thing. In Colossians 1, 4, he says, we've heard of your faith and your love. Okay, and then in verse 9, he then goes on to pray for the same thing. What they had in the gospel, faith and love. Paul says, I pray that you would grow deeper in the knowledge of him so that you would continue to bear that fruit and bear more of it. He prays for what they already had. Point, the same thing that brought us to life in Christ is the same thing that is going to mature you in Christ. Which is why what should be proclaimed from this pulpit, the law and the gospel, warning and growing deeper and deeper in the doctrines and the glory of Christ Jesus. So what is the gospel? Well, the gospel is that there is only one person who can bring you into the presence of God with peace. It's not some angelic being, which, which Paul's making it clear to the Colossians. It's not some angelic being, some hierarchy of angels, and, and Christ is just the top one. No, it's not some radical life that you live either. The gospel is Christ Jesus. God the Son, born in an animal stable. He put on your infirmities. He put on my infirmities. He put on the flesh that was ruined in the fall. And in every way that Adam failed, he, he grew up, he was a carpenter, he learned to walk, he learned to eat, learned to, to live and to work. And he started preaching. He started his ministry. What did he preach? He preached the law. And why did he preach the law? Mainly because it showed them that they couldn't keep it. And what he was really doing was saying, I am. But they hated that. The Jews that he was talking to hated it. Why? Because they wanted to trust just, even if you want to argue that they were only trusting a little bit, the fact that they wanted to trust a little bit, he was squashing that idea and they hated it. Not even a little bit can we trust in our own deeds. Can we trust in our own righteousness, our own motivations, our own desires, our own love for God? We can't make a move toward him. Even if outside of Christ we do good things, doesn't matter. We are not holy as he is holy. We're not perfect as he is perfect. And he shows up on the scene and is both of those and they hated him. But he did that for me and for you. He kept the law perfectly. In every way you failed this week to truly love God with every thought, with every motivation, with every ounce of energy that you had not to be distracted but to truly love him your maker, your creator, your God, in every way that you were not present to your neighbor, that you were just so aggravated because you had to change your agenda to serve someone else, in every way that that aggravated you, in every way that you failed to love God and neighbor, he didn't. He fulfilled it perfectly, and he did it for you. And then the Father crushed him for all the punishment that your sin deserved. God the Father crushed Christ Jesus in your place. 
And Jesus took that sacrifice. The Father accepted it. And he rose again from the dead, defeating evil, defeating sin, defeating all the works of the flesh. Nothing will now separate you from the love of God and your hope is secure. Reconciliation is yours. He did it and you have received it by faith. Peace is yours, brothers and sisters. Peace is yours with God. The Father was pleased to do this. This is what we proclaim to you every single week in different ways from the scriptures. That Christ is your only hope. And this is what the church is here for. The church is here to proclaim this message, but the church is the place that this message is preserved and it is taught to the world. The church has the keys to the kingdom. Christ is the key, and we're giving that to people. Be reconciled to God. Be reconciled to God. And people believe hell cannot prevail against the church. Hell cannot prevail against the power of God in the gospel of Jesus Christ. So not only does it bring us to salvation, but Christ is also the way that we are matured. And this maturity in Christ is the goal, right? Maturity in Christ is the goal. It finds its completion, though. As we are being matured, we'll talk about that. It finds its completion at the day when our king returns and we will be like him. That's going to happen. God, give us faith to believe that. But for now, but for now, we have a great gift called the church. And it is where the ordinary means, the word and the sacrament are here for us to participate in. They save us and they sanctify us. The preaching of Christ saves us and it matures us. The sacraments hold us and keep us and keep us believing and nourish our faith all the way until we're welcomed in glory. 1 Peter 1.23, Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God, God's word is living and it is active. Hebrews 4, 12, for the word of God is living and active. It's sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing the division of the soul and of the spirit and of the joints of, and of marrow. The word of God in his church is sharper. It corrects, it sustains faith, it builds faith, it encourages, it exhorts. And so Paul called Timothy we're still in, in talking about pastors here. Paul called Timothy to what? To devote himself to the word. He says, until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of scripture, of exhortation, and to teaching. And that's what we aim to do for you fellow saints. We aim to devote ourselves to the reading of scripture, to the exhortation of the scripture, and to teaching it. And of course, not only is it the word of God, but it's the sacraments, as we just said. And this is what we do. As pastors, this is what we do. And primarily what we do here when we gather, it's otherworldly. It is otherworldly. We all want to chase that experience of the fast track, sanctification, personal, let's get it. But here's the thing. The Lord's Day gathering is an experience. Christ Jesus is really and spiritually present here with us to nourish our dead, excuse me, we're not dead, to nourish our sometimes often weak souls 
that have a hard time believing the truth. We do believe it. Help our unbelief. Christ is here to keep us and to do that for us. And what we do here is we try to fight distraction, right? Because we know what's going to happen. We know we're going to get the word and the sacrament. We know we're going to get Christ here. And so we aim to show up undistracted to, to just hide in our hearts everything we get this morning. Keep it with us all week long talking about it with our spouses, with our kids, with our friends. 2 Corinthians 7, 1, Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. This is a corporate reality. Maturity in Christ begins in the gathering church where the ordinary means are exercised and it works its way out into our life. And we're counted as holy in Christ. We're being made holy in Christ and one day we will be holy. And sanctification now, between now and then, it is a fact. It will happen. We are sanctified in Christ by the Spirit. 1 Corinthians 1, chapter 2, and uh, 1, verse 2, and chapter 6, verse 11. This is the objective grounds that sanctification is a fact that we have this subjective experience of sanctification. Here's what I mean by that. It's not only a fact and that it's God's work and he said he would do it in us, but the fact that he has put his spirit inside of us at regeneration. Sanctification then requires or acquires an active meaning and we're called to equip and to sanctify ourselves, to devote our lives to God in love have a million verses here from Romans and Corinthians and Thessalonians to quote. I'm not going to list them all because just read the end of every epistle. This is what it means to sanctify yourselves, to devote your life to God. It plays its way out not only in your own running from sin and your own not leaving the hope and the faith of Christ Jesus, but it works its way out in how you love one another, which is the fulfillment of the law, Romans 13. So in a word, we become who we are. This is what sanctification is. We're becoming who we are in Christ Jesus. What did he do? He died for his enemies. And we are in him living for each other, dying to protect and to preserve and to mature each other. And this is wonderful news that we're becoming who we are because we could not do this before. We were slaves to sin, only worried about self. We were so selfish, it, it didn't matter. In Adam, we were slaves to sin. The only reason we cared about other people is because it benefited us. But the same way that we were slaves to sin, had no trouble at all sinning. We actually liked it. It's what we did. We loved it. And that happened by birth in Adam, just being born. That same way, we are slaves to God by our new birth in Christ Jesus. Now, we love new things. Now, we do show up to church because that can get mixed up. We can forget what our priorities should be. And so we hear the word of Christ telling us what our priorities should be, each other. So the same way that we were slaves to sin by birth in Adam, we are slaves to God in, the, in our new birth into Christ Jesus. He puts his spirit inside of us. And this is how, what we read today, that greater works are done in the church of God. Ezekiel 36, I'll put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in the statutes and be careful to obey my rules. This is glorious news for sinners who had no care about God. We now love him. 
well, I don't feel my love. I know because we're still in these bodies of death in a fallen world. But here's the truth. You love God. You love God. You do. That's what it means to be new creations in Christ Jesus. So before you didn't care about him, you hated him. You only love self. Now you do love God. And as we've said, he loves us. He loves you. And so when we think of sanctification, I think we often slip into this law economy and we make it about, about uh, you know, God's writing our evaluations at the end of the day and hopefully I did good today. That's not what it's about. You're a new creation. You're on a different planet now. The law economy of condemned or not condemned, that's over with. That was handled in Christ Jesus. Now you are a new creation walking out what it means to love God and love your neighbor. Welcome to new life in Christ Jesus, where we have to be reminded every single week because we forget it. And we turn God into this sadistic nightmare, and none of us really want to get too close because we don't think about him like this. And so this is why, to clear up this point because I feel like I can ramble, is this is why we proclaim him. This is why the pastors of CBC your pastors, as we watch over your souls, as we care for you, the first and primary way we do that is to get in his word and preach him. Warning and teaching. Warning and teaching everyone. So part two, I would like to tell you this short. It should be. um, But it's our ministry to one another. It's our ministry to one another. Or point two, uh, so we looked at our pastor's ministry to CBC. What is our ministry in here? Well, we all have a role. I want all of you to feel this, especially members of CBC. We all have a role in working to present each other mature in Christ. You want to know what your duty is? There it is. Fight and work and toil and struggle for each other that you may present each other mature in Christ. The people in this room claimed by God, we will be in eternity with each other forever. You're beloved of God, and this is our duty to protect, to love, to love, and to serve each other. Now, this work is difficult. It's difficult for all of us because we have the fear of man in us. We don't want to say anything wrong, but can we please just assume good in each other? I know you love each other. I love you. You love us, and so let's live this way. Christ is the end of all this gossip and unforgiveness and, and, and slander and malice. It's the end of all that. We are partakers of heavenly things forever, eternal peace with the God of the universe. The holy, righteous creator is your father. Man, all this stuff is so small. Forgive, reconcile. Let's take care of one another. Let's be intentional. And this is good news for us. This is good news. You're not going to live the rest of your life a slave trying to build your own little kingdom that's just going to be burnt up in the end. Mm -mm. We labor for things that will last forever. Each other's sanctification, each other's maturity, to to trust Christ, to not leave him. So whether you're a full-time pastor or whether you're a lay elder or whether it's your children who you're trying to to teach and to mature, whether it's your husband or wife or your best friend in the church or whether it's it's from father to son or daughter to mother or, or... Whatever, we're teaching and admonishing one another. This is what we do, law and gospel. We toil and we struggle for one another. 
but be encouraged. Although this is hard and it gets tiring and we don't feel like it, we don't do this in our own strength. We do this by the Spirit with the energy of Christ. Christ in you, the hope of glory. We're going to toil for each other with His energy. With His energy, brothers and sisters. Warning and admonishing each other. When, when one of you are strayed to leave the faith, we go after you. Go after your brother and sister. We bear one another's burdens, taking each other deeper into who Christ is and how to look to Him how to look to Him in all circumstances of life. We admonish one another. We point out potential dangers in each other's life. Hey, if you, I just feel like if you keep doing this, it's not going to be well. Just say this to each other. It's okay. Let's invite correction. We need it. Hum, we need to humble ourselves before one another. We can always use the correction of the Word. We can always use the correction of the Word. Here's a few other things. We teach and instruct each other how to honor God and how to serve neighbor through our vocations. And here's what I mean. Older seasoned saints, you are to, br- to bring your younger believers up in the faith. Older women in the faith, instruct younger wives and mothers how to love their children and their husbands. Older men showing younger men how to love their wives and bring their children up in the discipline of the Lord. We open our lives to one another. We open our lives to one another. Letting the finished work of Christ dwell in us so that we will be quick to put it in the ears of our brothers and sisters at all times. Colossians 3.16 says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing songs, hymns, and spiritual songs with thanksgiving in your hearts to God. Saints, let's humble ourselves. Let's love one another. This is not a country club where we show off how well we're doing or how well we've got it. Right? No. We need correction. We need each other. So what does this look like for you? I don't know. It's going to look different for all of you, depending on what season of life you're in, how many small children you got, how much free time you got. Of course it looks different. But here's the thing. Are we considering one another? What is the primary consideration of your life past providing for your family? prioritizing the church. It's each other. It's each other. This is what we've covenanted to do. So I have a conclusion. It's to read some scripture, but I don't feel like we need to. I'm thankful for the Lord Jesus. I think we're all in the same mind here. I think we all want to love Christ more. We want to love each other more. We want to start exploring like what it would mean for me to live this way to be concerned about my brothers and sisters' maturity in Christ Jesus, to admonish and to teach, to have this on my mind and my heart. I want to do that more in my conversations with you. And here's the thing. Man, God is so gracious to us. He will see to it. And the first way is by prioritizing this gathering where this kind of stuff happens, where we have Him proclaimed to us. It's how we're brought to life, how we're sanctified and matured. So let's pray.